and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, May 23rd, we are studying Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. In today's text, John's vision of the heavenly throne room continues. He sees the Lamb who was slain take the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Denzer. Pastor Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and he is also the chaplain at the International Center in St. Louis, Missouri. Pastor Denzer, welcome back to Sharp Iron. It's great to be back. As we get started today, Pastor Denzer, let's just talk about the book of Revelation as a whole. How should we approach the book? Why is it important for us to read it as Christians? Oh, it's easy, because it's a worship book. As we'll <laughs> see right today, up your alley. <laughs> oh, it is. I mean, it's uh, it's anything but doom and gloom. Obviously, it's got its rough judgment parts, uh, but it's a letter of encouragement to the church. This is certainly how I see it. Not so much telling the future as it is peeling back the curtain so we can see what is going on, what in some cases has been going on uh, uh, since our Lord Jesus Christ conquered Satan uh, by his death on the cross. Uh, uh, we get to see the church, uh, what looks to us like uh, forces of the world uh, uh, doing their own thing as usual. Uh, Revelation kind of, I mean, as, as the name implies, pulls back the curtain and discloses something to us of uh, what's going on behind it. But the picture we see most of all is that the Lord Jesus, uh, the Lord on his throne, uh, and the Lamb of God that we're going to talk about today uh, are reigning are ruling. They have everything well under control. Uh, it, it's it's all written down, in fact, as we'll see, uh, and, uh, and it's going to be disclosed to us to give us endurance, to give us hope, to give us confidence in the midst of, yeah, I mean, plenty of scary stuff going on around us, and maybe it's good that we don't get to see, you know, all of these kind of beastly things uh, behind them. Um, uh, but what we should see is that uh, with Christ Jesus at the helm, uh, these last days uh, are going exactly as he has laid out, and uh, the church has a glorious place in this, uh, and the church has a glorious uh, certainty in him. So you, you called it a worship book at the beginning. How does, how does worship figure into the book, not only in today's text, but elsewhere? Kind of... Mm, uh, I think there's a way in which we start to think of worship as this time that lasts from this start time at eight o'clock to eight uh, to nine o'clock or nine fifteen. If Pastor Apple goes a little long, or <laughs> we we don't start till nine. So oh, okay, that's right. <laughs> you you get up earlier time. than we do. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I'm earlier than that some days. Uh, <laughs> but that's that's not really the way worship is from the eternal perspective, from the angelic perspective. It's constant. It's ongoing. Uh, I suppose one way to think of it is 
you know, we're tapping into that. We're plugging in and tuning in for certain portions of it as we have our times, 9 o'clock at your parish and, you know, 7.45 at the early one at mine. But, uh, I mean, the other way is just to recognize that even as we start earlier than you do, uh, it continues around the world. Uh, the Holy Christian Church on earth is worshiping 24 hours a day, you could say, uh, and all the time. Uh, but we are always joining with what is outside of time in eternity. Um, and, and we kind of get to glimpse that, in particular in today's text, where we get to see the praise, in, in particularly in uh, the chapter before, when we got to hear, again, just as Isaiah disclosed to us as well, uh, the singing of the angels and their song. Uh, and, and I think we'll find that, uh, for good reason, our Christian worship on earth uh, is reminiscent of this. It's built off of what we have seen in these glimpses uh, from St. John, from the Old Testament as well. Um, uh, but but it's not simply imitation. Uh, the reality is Christ is on his throne, and even though we do not see him ruling, we do not see all things under sub, under his feet in subjection to him, uh, yet we know uh, by faith, by trust in his promises, this is the case, and that's why we sing boldly just as they are in heaven. That's right. So we're in chapter 5 this morning, and as we, we said in yesterday's show on chapter 4, you really have to see chapters 4 and 5 together, because we started in the heavenly throne room. With that chapter, we continue in the heavenly throne room in chapter 5. Anything in particular that we should remember from chapter 4 as we jump into chapter 5 today? Yeah, maybe let's refresh the characters. Can we do that? Sure. Uh, we're gonna. We're gonna. These are the outer circles, and sometimes you see some. This is a great scene, and it's. Uh, it must be fun to paint if you're an artist. There's lots of artistic works depicting this. Uh, a famous one on the Ghent altarpiece, right, with that lamb on a very normal-looking altar uh, in nice green grass, and then all the people around it. Uh, certainly more, uh, an opportunity for more obscure, uh, edgy stuff from the 20th century, too. Uh, but we've already been introduced to the to the surrounding cast. We're about to get to the main characters today, the, the ones that have their attention. But we should see that there are the four living creatures. Uh, they're the ones that looks like the lion, the one that looks like the ox, the one that looks like a man, and the one that looks like an eagle in flight. Uh, and often these have been compared to the four Gospels. Uh, uh, but we see they have six wings. They, they in, in some ways, are like casts of angels, perhaps. Uh, and uh, along with them, we have 24 elders. Uh, 24 is significant because it's twice 12, the number of the tribes of Israel. So uh, I like to see that as an Old and New Testament Israel all together joined up, uh, all the fullness of them. Uh, and, and and we with St. John are, are with them, and, and who knows how many other people are there, too. But they're all bowing down and worshiping. They're singing, holy, holy, holy uh, to the Lord himself. Uh, but now we're going to have uh, somebody else coming in, uh, uh, the one who's to the right of that throne. All right. So with that in mind, we read chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. John writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals." 
And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That is our text for today. That is Revelation 5, verses 1 to 14. So Pastor Denzer, again, we are in the heavenly throne room, and John is, again, looking at the throne and the one seated there, and he sees in his hand a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Talk about this scroll that's been sealed and written in this way. Well, it's in the right hand. The right hand is the hand of power, authority, uh, uh, ability. This is the majesty of God. Uh, so uh, this is his his control, his mastery of all things. Uh, this is the powerful hand, the one that blesses, I suppose, the one that can uh, uh, punish or, or accomplish what it says and points to. And it's got, yeah, a scroll written on the front and the back. It, it does harken back to uh, Ezekiel and this scroll. I believe that's the one, right, that Ezekiel was commanded to eat, to ingest. It yeah. tasted sweet, but also had some bitterness to it, right? Yeah, that's right. It's in the first couple of chapters of Ezekiel. Yeah, and in Ezekiel's prophecy, I mean, it does function very similar to Isaiah standing before the throne room, transported perhaps to the temple or to the vision of the eternal temple, uh, and and it's so his commission, right? Uh, his call papers, I like to think of, and tis the season for that, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, here, we're not told exactly what the contents are, but if we're if we're going to understand the seals on it, they're going to be opened through the succeeding chapters. Uh, it appears this is the Lord's plan for all of it, for salvation, for for the course of this world's history, uh, uh, for his uh, destruction of his enemies and his uh, uh, triumph for his people. Um, the fact that it's written thoroughly probably suggests that it's 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 well planned out. This is not a, a back of the napkin kind of plan that the Lord has, which is great because that's the way I couple through life. Uh, but we see, of course, that our Lord has it well in hand well-planned out and organized. And, and, and not only maybe well-planned and organized, but all the way to the end, so that it's not yeah. it's not incomplete. There's not going to be some surprise ending that, that he won't see coming. He's got it all complete. Yeah, which, I mean, again, uh, challenges the kind of uh, popular view of Revelation as a, a book of mystery and shrouded. It seems like actually everything's well taken care of. The seals, uh, so hopefully you've seen like a wax seal, you know, the the, the king puts his ring or his, his seal into it and it leaves that nice pretty indentation. That's what you've got here. Or maybe you've got like a, 
a wrapping around the scroll, uh, and then the the instead of tying a knot, uh, they encase it in that wax so that uh, if you anyone opens this, it'll break, right? Um, uh, you know, and why is that important? Well, this is like, uh, you know, first century uh, security measures. Uh, there's no password to type in, uh, but we'll know if anybody's been tampering with it. Uh, uh, yeah. And so sealed with seven seals then would be sealed completely or, or as much as needed, the number seven showing up there again? Yeah, I mean, a divine number, his his divine perfection. So, so uh, both, I, I suppose it could be marking that this is uh, thoroughly done. You know, uh, it's got all its stamps at the DMV and it's you don't have to go back in line. Uh, but it also could be indicating that the the sealing up of it, the, 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 the hiddenness of it, so to speak, or the or the top secret nature of it, if you want to say that, uh, is thorough. This is the highest level of security. Um, uh, yeah, so, and, and if you've ever seen, by the way, uh, a picture of a lamb of God, uh, sometimes he has that flag, sometimes he has wounds, and he's often sitting on top of a book or, or yep. some kind of paper, and then you see those little dangling circles, that's exactly a depiction of this. It's it's common in church art. Those are the seven seals, the the plan, and the lamb we haven't gotten to, but we'll get there soon. So. Yeah, I, I remember the we were studying the book of Revelation in Smithville at one point, and it was during the season of Lent, and that was precisely the the art that was on the, the violet pyramids on the altar. And I had never noticed it until studying this text, just happening to see it that way. So you're and I've noticed it a lot more often now. So that is the image that we've got in church art coming from Revelation chapter 5. And again, we're going to see the Lamb's role in this as the text progresses. So right now, the scroll is in the hand of the one seated on the throne. It's sealed with seven seals. And then we have a strong angel who proclaims with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no no human being, at least at this point, is found. And so John begins to weep at this. Take us into this, the idea of opening and why John is crying at the thought that no one can open it. Yeah, P- Pastor, have you seen these signs? I've seen them popping up, like yard signs, and they just say, you are worthy. Do you know what the scoop is with these? I don't think I've seen that one yet. It's, it must be some campaign. I don't know where it comes from. But it's very interesting, axios in the Greek word, um, you are worthy. Uh, that is a fascinating thing to say. Um, and I would say, I might be able to agree with that, actually, but that needs a lot more explanation, doesn't it? <laughs> Um, I suppose there's a way in which our world, uh, I mean, there's there's many depressing things going on in our world. We don't need to go to Revelation to, to kind of get down or feel like there's a lot of apocalyptic uh, earthquakes and tectonic plates moving right now. Um, and I guess uh, in, as part of that, there's been a real emphasis from the general population to try and emphasize self-worth. You know, self-esteem was a thing when I was a kid. Um uh, talking about self-care, uh, having a higher opinion of yourself, don't don't talk down to yourself, uh, positive self-talk, uh, the word faith movement about uh, name it and claim it, think positively, you name it. And maybe this is just the next iteration of that. You are you are worthy, you're valuable, you're worth something. And at first, I mean, who could argue with that kind of message, I suppose? Well, apparently the the angel and St. John and everybody here in Revelation can yeah, who is who is axios? Who is who is worthy? Just period, right? Um, th- this is a word that that encompasses an awful lot. I suppose it could encompass in authority, who has clearance, uh, but maybe a better way is right. Who is morally worthy? Who 
uh, who's proven themselves or who's uh, in and of themselves holy, uh, right? And these are questions that, I mean, the reason I imagine somebody would need to put a sign that says, that encourages us to think of ourselves as worthy is because maybe we have evidence that suggests a lack of value or a devaluing that we have. And uh, I mean, as Christians, our message is, is complicated, maybe. Maybe it's too complicated for some. I don't think it's too complicated. It's just that it has a one-two punch. The one punch is, no, you're not worthy. Sin is real. The human condition is one that has fallen, um, and we, we aren't able to shift the blame off onto somebody else. We have to own that ourselves. We have to recognize what's in the heart of mankind. Uh, uh, we have to recognize that no, none of us is God. None of us is holy in and of ourselves, and and we know this. We know how young children, uh, you know, cover their ears and and go la 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 and pretend that nobody, you know, they're not hearing it, or they close their eyes or cover their eyes with their hands and pretend that if they can't see you, you can't see them, and we we rightly you know laugh and chuckle at that for kids, but it it would be astounding then if if grown adults took that attitude. Concerning their own failures, their own uh, troubles, including the things that have been done against us, which, again, I don't want to, you know, I don't think you can overcome those just by screaming, you can't touch me. Um, when somebody's been sinned against or something shameful has happened to them, it's, it's very difficult to remove that feeling of something's been snatched from me or taken from me or I've been devalued. I just think it takes a lot more honesty and a lot more patience. Um, you know, to bring them out of that feeling that is so palpable. There's, of course, where the forgiveness of sins is what Christianity is actually all about. That's, I mean, the grace is the place where we're going. First, we've got to establish the truth about us, and it may be a hard truth for us to establish, I mean, to, to admit at least, uh, that yes, we are unworthy. Uh, and I suppose if that's where the story end, we would be left weeping with St. John as well. Um, but... Well, maybe we should just go on and read, right? Well, yeah, that's right. So we're going to hear that there is one who is worthy. Why would the the fact that no one is able to open this scroll, at least again up through verse 4, why would that cause St. John to weep? Why does he want to hear what is in this scroll? Well, I mean, if if the world is not going to run its course in a wise way, in, in a way that's ordered, and that means it's a world of chaos, and there's not a whole lot of hope, I, I think that's cause to weep. If if it's uh, simply a Christian looking at this and saying, um, you know, the plans and the purposes and the outcomes of this world and its events are simply out of our control, we are uh, disenfranchised, there's nothing... Uh, that we can do or say or affect or or have any confidence in, that also is depressing, right? Um, uh, if you had no access to God and His plans, uh, how would you ever how would you ever know to trust Him or love Him? Uh, maybe He's an arbitrary uh, Greek sort of God who, who the only thing you can count on is He's probably uh, laughing at you at any given moment. Um, so, and. Maybe I don't want to devalue, frankly, the the richness of the scriptures. But look, we all know that when sometimes not knowing is worse than knowing something bad, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a sense that if the Lord has His plan, if He has a great scroll, uh, 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 wouldn't it be great to know what God was thinking. 
it's always astounding how easily sometimes we are willing to tell God what he's thinking or tell others, I know what God thinks, or or how dare you uh, suggest that you know how, what God thinks. When we believe, when we hear the scriptures, we actually do have God's words that we can trust. Uh, so wouldn't it be great to have those, right? Uh, to have a scroll that was communicating to us. Um, I mean, the scriptures do that. This revelation also is going to do that to us. Uh, so so uh, there's plenty of cause to weep if if it depended on us, we would see that in so many ways it would fail. Yeah, none of us is omnipresent and, uh, and omniscient. Also, none of us is holy and sinless. Um, so, you know, to try and enact a plan that has any sense to it, much less a plan that's going to have grace and forgiveness and peace at its end, uh, it's going to take someone else. Hmm. Yeah, and so the someone else is identified by one of the elders in verse 5. One of the elders speaks to John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So one of the elders tells John, Don't weep anymore. And he points, I assume, he says, Behold, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Talk, talk about that title for our Lord Jesus first. I love these piling up, yeah. Uh, so hmm, Judah is the tribe. They're the big one, right? The the big brother there, the one that uh, survives in the in the course of Israel's history. They're they're the southern kingdom. Usually, we call them Judah as opposed to Israel. Once we have a divided monarchy in the Old Testament, uh, the northern tribes uh, called Israel or Samaria or uh, Ephraim. Those uh, ten tribes are all destroyed by the Assyrians. They are scattered everywhere. We sometimes call them the lost tribes of Israel. Uh, it's that they've been kind of assimilated and spread abroad and scattered out of existence. Whereas Benjamin, little Benjamin, and big brother Judah, uh, you know, these tribes down south continue on longer. Jerusalem is is the center of uh, of Judah, and. Uh, uh, you know, that's the place where they return when they come back from the exile too. And the people of Judah hold together as the Hebrews, the the remnant of Israel uh, that does come out of Babylon. But long before any of that, back when Judah and and uh, Benjamin and all these people were actually names of real brothers, the children, little children of Jacob, Israel, uh, the, the promise was given that the scepter will not depart from Judah uh, uh, until... The Messiah comes, right? So this is this is a prophecy of Judah's. Uh, you know, I suppose you could say it was kind of fulfilled in the sense that Judah became synonymous with Israel. They're the the ruling tribe, so to speak. But that's not the true fulfillment. Uh, it really comes to pass when Christ Jesus, you know, of the tribe of Judah, uh, is born, uh, comes into our flesh, uh, the Son of God, and and accomplishes our salvation by His death and resurrection. Lion, I, uh, okay, lion. Yeah, keep going. I don't know. Lion is 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 a, a tricky one because that's a predator. Sometimes it's used uh, for the devil, right? The prowling lion looking for someone to devour. Uh, but here, lion is a victorious, triumphant, uh, uh, the king of the jungle. We even say, and I think all of those images of a lion with its prowess, uh, with its triumph, uh, with its uncontestability. Uh, that's who Christ now is. Yeah. Well, and, and in that blessing that Jacob gave to his sons in Genesis 49, in which the scepter will not depart from Judah, Jacob also says of Judah that Judah is a lion's cub. So, I mean, that that image has been associated with the tribe of Judah from that blessing, 
and elsewhere in the Old Testament, at least there's I can think of one reference in the prophet Amos where he pictures the Lord roaring as, oh, yeah. as a lion. Yeah. So I mean, this is this is an image that is associated with the Lord, with the tribe of Judah, with the Messiah in the Old Testament, now applied to our Lord Jesus Christ. And and grown up, I, I like that kind of cub. The cub has grown up into yeah. the the Lord Himself who roars. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Amos is it's a difficult roar, right? He's he's yeah. mostly roaring, uh, accusing us of our sins and calling us to repentance. Here, there's a new roar in town, and this is the roar that silences the weeping, uh, because he's he's uh, arise to help. Yes, and and just keep in mind this image of Jesus as the lion as we go forward, and how as you already said, the images start to pile up. And this is just the nature of apocalyptic literature, that you do have these various images of Jesus standing side by side, sometimes in contrast, but all adding to the picture of who Jesus is for us as the one who's worthy to open the scroll. Got about we two call minutes him here. the Alpha and the Omega, haven't we? So obviously he's encompassing all, almost all the images, but we can only... I guess John could only write down a few of them for us, right? That's right. That's right. So, so far, Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. With about a minute here, Pastor Denzer, before our break, start talking at least about the root of David, as he is called there. Oh, goodness. This is a rich one. Uh, and I think we think of Advent, I hope. We have O Come Emmanuel, O Come, O Come Emmanuel, based on those O antiphons. In fact, I have a wonderful stained glass window outside the studio that has those antiphons on it. But the root, oh, I mean, trying to unpack the way it's been mentioned in Jeremiah, in uh, some of the other prophets, uh, where it's spoken of that, uh, you know, Jesse's stump, right? You have David, the great king, the son of Jesse, and yet after that, man, I mean, Solomon, but after him, the kingdom is divided, uh, and eventually all of the tribes kind of come to ruin, right? Even going off into exile, and you have this image of like a, a tree that had grown and yet now is just chopped back down. But out of the, out of the stump of all that, uh, a, new, uh, a new David springs. And we've always seen that as a proclamation of Jesus. We usually talk about that proclamation during Advent leading up to Christmas. But here we can see it also uh, related to Easter and his triumph and, and the eternity, the end of the world as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, resurrection, Easter, the root of David, this new life that springs forth, that has come in Christ Jesus. That is the one John is seeing ascending the throne of God here in Revelation 5. We're going to take our break, but we'll be right back. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Sean Denzer this morning about Revelation 5. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love.
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, May 23rd. We're studying Revelation 5, verses 1 to 14 with Pastor Sean Denzer. He is the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and Chaplain at the International Center in St. Louis, Missouri. Pastor Denzer, prior to the break, you got us started talking about Jesus as the root of David. You brought up the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the O Antiphons. Take us to more places in Scripture. Help us to keep unpacking this image of who Jesus is. Sure. I, it's hard not to think of Jeremiah and all the hymns that it's inspired. Uh, oh, how a rose are blooming, you know, the branch of which I'm speaking, the rose, the flower, the and uh, whatever, however you want to translate those hymns and those antiphons, it's clear we have some kind of tree metaphor, we have growth, we have new growth with budding, and, and all of this in contract with the, the stump of Jesse that is mentioned uh, and the notion that that Israel's tree uh, uh, has has a big gash in it, uh, in that it, it never reached its pinnacle, it never it, it's no longer bearing fruit. Uh, something new has to grow out of it, uh, and this image gets picked up in, in in things from popular culture too. Frankly, it's just it's a it's a fruitful image, literally. Uh, but what is fascinating here is it's not the branch of of Jesse that grows out of Jesse's stump. But it's the root of David. And uh, this is marvelous, right? Because because how you want to classify Christ Jesus? He has this debate with the Pharisees, you know. um, uh, How can David's son also be called David's Lord? That's his riddle to the the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the answer, of course, is if it's the Son of God incarnate who is your Savior. I mean, it's a very good answer. I wish they had pressed on to answer that question. Here, though, um, you know, I think what does Root emphasize? It's not only that he is the descendant of David, that might be the branch that grows out of the stump, the new David, uh, the new and greater David that has come, Uh, but this is the one who is before David, the one uh, who uh, really has the house, right? I I love that other prophecy with David that David wants to build a house, a temple for the Lord, and and the Lord says, actually, I'm going to build a house for you. Uh, and, And so we see now that David... Uh, although he seems to be the the king uh, out of which the the royal line comes, uh, no, actually he stands in the line of the Lord Himself, right? So David's Lord has now become His Son in in the incarnation, and uh, so a, a rich term, right, uh, for Jesus. Who, who uh, and notice how John is kind of you know, for good effect, and I guess by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, putting off the name. Of uh, of who this person is or the identity, and uh, but it's it's a uh, it's not wrong if you're sitting in your seat giggling and raising your hand because you know the answer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I I really do appreciate the way that it is revealed that is written here. The the suspense of okay, I I I see here is the one who will be able to open the scrolls. He has conquered, and even with the that language, you know, he's the lion, he's the root of David, the one from whom David has come, David's lord. He's the conquering hero so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Even all of that very victorious language, which John has used throughout the book of Revelation, then as you finally do see him, then in verse 6, there is a bit of a, a juxtaposition of images. So in, in verse 6... John now looks, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, and I would, just the way we confess in the creed that the Son sits at the Father's right hand, so I'm, I'm guessing this is on the right side of the, the throne, this is the Father's right hand. Or perhaps in front of him, right? I mean, Or maybe uh, in front, okay. Taking center stage, you know, with the, with the man on the throne uh, who is, uh, uh, you know, 
he's before the man on the throne, God, the Father, of course, right. and uh, and uh, uh, he has the floor, and the Father's directing our attention to him. Everybody else's, all eyes are on him, right? Right. Okay, so so in front, I like it. So, and what does John see? He sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So, man, there's a rich image, Pastor Denzer. The land, lamb standing as if he has been slain. So, um... It, it, uh, I feel like I say this all the time, but I'll say it once more. You cannot separate the crucifixion and the resurrection, and you have it right here. It's it's very much like the angel's announcement on Easter. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is and was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. Uh, now we have the opposite. We have a lamb who looks like he's been slain, standing right, on his own four feet. Uh, so by no means is he dead anymore. He's not weak. Uh, he's not limping. He's not laying there convalescing. He is standing proudly, triumphantly, and yet still has some kind of image that he has slain, right, his scars or something. Uh, and in, in the pictures of the Lamb of God, often he's depicted with a big gash on him with blood coming out, you know, but alive, no X's on those eyes, uh, standing uh, wonderfully. Um, a lamb. We've heard this title before, and it's from John the Baptist's great sermon. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is Jesus Christ. This this should perk up our ears. We know the lamb. Uh, we know that he has taken away the sin of the world, like all lambs do, by dying, by being offered as a sacrifice, uh, by letting their pleasant aroma go before the Father's nostrils so that he is pleased, by letting their blood be splashed against the altar so that he uh, sin is atoned for. Uh, all of that has happened, and yet this lamb, unlike all the others, stands, right, and is alive. Uh, so now we see the worthiness, right? He has, he has paid for all sins. He has, he has uh, covered all impediments uh, and that is and is alive, and that's why he's worthy. He has the approval of the Father, and he's accomplished something uh, to win that approval if anybody would dare to contest him. Uh, and you're right, that is how he has conquered, strangely enough. Yeah, well, and I, that's why I appreciate you bringing out that he is the crucified one, even as the risen one, that you don't leave the crucifixion behind in the sense that, oh, that was the the bump in the road or something like that. No, the, the crucifixion, this is how the Father has reconciled the world to himself. It is finished, Jesus says from the cross. And you again, you don't separate that from the resurrection, but you don't leave that behind. He stands there as the crucified one, and it is in that victory now that he has even this greater victory of resurrection and ascension. I, I, I think that's really important to, to keep in mind. Think of think of Luke, uh, uh, John too. Uh, Jesus comes in the upper room and he shows them right his scars, or he shows Thomas, "Hey, thrust your hand into my side." Right? It is in fact in those wounds that they become glad. Uh, I suppose at the simplest level, it's just kind of the apologetic thing, like, "Yes, okay, this is the same Jesus, the one who died. I recognize these. That's where they jam the spear in. Same guy, not a lookalike." Uh, but we know it's so much more, right? By his wounds we are healed, says Isaiah, says St. Peter. Uh, so um, the looking as though he has been slain, uh, having this appearance, showing his scars, uh, is not, uh, you, you know, it gives us pause, I suppose. We might have always thought of heaven as being this perfect place where all of the, the sad and nasty things are kind of effaced, 
Um, maybe that will be the case for us. I, I couldn't tell you exactly, but I know it's not going to be the case for Christ, and that's because his wounds are potent, right? They are powerful. They are uh, something he is glad to bear and to show off to us, and not just because he's bawdy at the at the drinking table, but because, right, this, these are the things that make us glad. These are the wounds and the stripes by which we were healed. Yeah, well, and this is the fulfillment of what Jesus said throughout John's gospel when he was talking about being glorified. Here, mm-hmm. here it is, the glorification that is his as the crucified and risen Savior. So he stands there as the lamb who has been slain. Now he's got seven horns and seven eyes, and John specifies that the seven eyes are the seven spirits of God, which I mean, we've seen the spirits of God before, these seven spirits being the full presence of the Holy Spirit. What's the connection to Jesus here with these seven horns, the Spirit of God? You know, I think the horns has to signify some kind of power, right? Lift up your horn on high is a popular image in the Psalter about uh, power, strength, authority, uh, especially in battle. He's the conqueror, so it makes sense. Seven, so, I mean, the thoroughly complete conqueror of God. Uh, But also with eyes, nothing is escaping his attention. Uh, Nothing is unseen. He, uh, he, He knows all. He sees all. He plans all. Uh, he is all light. Um, and then I think, uh, you know, likening both of those seven images to yet another one of the of the Spirit and his seven gifts, you know, shows us uh, it's hard for us. I already mentioned the wounds of Jesus risen uh, on Easter Day in the end of uh, a number of those Gospels. We see also at the end of the Gospels he's interested in bestowing the Holy Spirit, right? Luke, go go uh, gather in Galilee, wait for the Spirit to come on Pentecost. Uh, in John's Gospel, he breathes out on them his Holy Spirit and, and speaks about the forgiveness of sins uh, that is to be declared in and on account of his wounds that are now in his resurrection. Uh, so, so all of this is at work. There's something that's come into the creed, uh, which is disputed in some corners of the church, but confessed by us, uh, which is that the the Spirit proceeds both from the Father and from the Son. Uh, and this is a recognition of all of the evidence there in the Gospels of the Spirit being given by Jesus, of Jesus promising him, calling him the Spirit of truth. He's called the Spirit of Christ in the epistles. Um, so I think the same thing is being said here in John's Gospel, in the uh, Revelation, rather. So this is what John is seeing, the Lamb who has been slain, now he sees him standing in front of the throne of God. And as you mentioned, just the way that this is described, there is this sense of suspense. I imagine silence at this moment as John watches. The lamb goes to the one on the throne. He takes this scroll from his right hand in verse 7. And then when this happens in verse 8, then utter joy breaks forth. And so this is where the, all the characters that you mentioned that showed up in chapter 4, they, they're mentioned here again. We've got the four living creatures and the 24 elders. They're falling down now before the Lamb. So the worship that was being offered to the Father on the throne in chapter 4 now is being offered to the Lamb. And we're going to get into their song. John notes that these, these figures are holding a harp. Uh, they got golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Tell us some about some of these details here that we see in verse 8. Sure. The harp reminds us of the Psalter. It's named after the instrument of the strings that uh, was used to accompany the singing. Uh, so, you know, it comes into the angels with their harps, of course, at Christmas time. But um, we should see this as a song of joy, 
uh, a song of peace, perhaps, uh, a royal song, uh, but yet a stately poetry of Israel. And then together with it, the golden bowls of incense, the prayers of the saints. This is always the image in the Old Testament that that the uh, the priest would take, you know, uh, with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on his chest. He would bring the... Uh, the um the coals from the altar in he'd offer the incense before the holy of holies uh, another testament he'd come out uh, smelling of all that incense as he goes to lay the pieces of meat out and all of this pleasant aroma both of the meat i got to say and of the uh, incense you know is a is a testament to all who smell it uh, that the lord also has uh, not flared angry nostrils uh, but pl- pleasant uh, appeased pacified uh, by the atonement uh, uh, and uh, uh, willingly blessing instead of uh, pouring out his wrath anymore. All of this is what Christ has accomplished by his death, by his resurrection. And so uh, there's the sense in which uh, uh, the prayers and the praises now may be offered as well. I mean, if nobody's worthy to open the scroll, what would make you think that your prayers are worth hearing? What would make you think that your, your praises are worth God listening to them? I mean, what if he, he doesn't like that court? Sorry, uh, but in Christ Jesus, all of it is made worthy. Right? This is the 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 righteousness of faith. Apart from faith, we can do, pray, praise, sing nothing. Uh, it is not pleasing to God. In faith in Christ Jesus, on account of His blood, on account of this Lamb that's been slain and now is alive, uh, we can offer all of it. Always pray in the name of Jesus Christ for this reason. In verse 9, John says that they're singing a new song. Why a new song? What makes it new? Psalm 98, a few other psalms quoted as well. What is new about this song is not the chords, it's not the uh, language. What's new is the content, the person. And it is a newness that is eternally uh, new. It is, it is, uh, it's not fresh because it's a, a different tune than the old ones. Uh, it's not because of its new creativity. It's because of what uh, the newness that has come in Christ Jesus. This new is the same as the new in New Testament in Christ's blood. Um, I mean, there's plenty of connection to the Old Testament. Uh, There's plenty of reasons why in the New Testament we continue to sing the Old Testament songs. In fact, we'll see plenty of of, uh, connection in some of these things. We we just had holy, holy, holy uh, from Isaiah last chapter. Uh, But the new song here is the song that has to do with this, this new event, uh, the the coming of the Son of Man, the the Lamb who's been slain and is risen forevermore, uh, who has conquered, uh, that's what makes it new. Even in Psalm 98, it talks about the salvation of our God that will be seen to all. A, a beautiful thing to just see that the word salvation is, is where the name Jesus comes from. Uh, so our new songs are any songs that testify to Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you're singing that song, even if it's uh, the words from John the Baptist, you're singing a new song. Yeah. So John then gives us the words of this new song, and I, I don't know if you want how you want to think about this, Pastor Denzer. There's maybe a, a stanza and then a couple of refrains, or maybe we hear three different stanzas as this goes on. I do think, as you pointed out with the Holy, Holy, Holy in the previous chapter, we want to connect this song into maybe one one long song that's going to be stretched out throughout this book, even beyond this chapter. Well, this is, I mean, this has always been a pattern for Christian worship. Um, we are in a, a period of time where singing and music is mostly for professional performers, and all you and I get to do is listen to it on recordings. 
Um, and we can have those recordings whenever we want. Uh, but, I mean, unless you're in the shower, you don't sing along. You don't have a part where it's my turn to sing to. We, we just don't do this anymore. We're, we're exclusively consumers, and there's only professional performers. Um, sometimes the church overreacts a little bit and says, in church, we're going to have only congregational song. We're just going to have hymns. Uh, for a long time, sadly, they didn't even let the pastors sing. Thank God a lot of times they do let the pastors sing again now. They, they should. But, I mean, this has always been a hallmark of Lutheran worship and really in worship in the Western Christian Church even before it, which is you have a whole bunch of ensembles singing back and forth. I mean, so, I mean, the ideal Christian worship patterned off of this in a very direct way is you've got the pastor singing, you've got the people responding and singing, you've got hymns, uh, but you've got a choir, maybe you've got instruments and organs joining in. Um, uh, you know, think of Michael Pretorius, if you're familiar with him at all. He is very famous in that period of time of having multiple choirs, multiple ensembles, uh, and even located in all parts of the church singing back and forth to each other. And there's a great woodcut of uh, this on the front of his uh, great musical publication that has all that. You can see him conducting a little choir down here, and there's guys in the balcony and instruments over there. But above them, you've got the angels, you've got living creatures, you've got the lamb on the throne trying to express, look, you know, we're taking our moment of song. It's, it's a giant responsive concertado going on, a uh, uh, where, where this uh, ensemble performs and that ensemble performs so that echoing back and forth and joining together en masse, you have the whole symphony, you have the whole great and glorious church together with all the saints and the angels and, and even God himself singing, if you believe Zechariah uh, uh, or Zephaniah, um, yeah. uh, uh, all of us singing uh, praise of God and what he has done. And as we look at the words of the song, we'll see that. All right, so we've got about eight minutes here, Pastor Denzer, which I know is hardly enough time to do this justice. We could spend a lifetime looking at these words, and thankfully we get to spend eternity singing them. So help us into the, the text of the song. We've got, Worthy are you to take the scroll, you were slain, the mention of, of ransoming people from all tribes and languages and nations to make them together a people. Help us into the words. Sure. Uh, now the axios, the worthiness, is clear. Um, that was the problem. It's been resolved. It's resolved uh, in this lamb. Uh, so the scroll can be opened. We can read it. We can hear what it's all about. And that's the next chapters to come. But notice why. What is the thing that makes makes for worthiness? Because this is true for this lamb. It's also true for us if we want to redeem that little slogan. The worthiness comes from his blood. His blood that has atoned for the sin, that has purchased back, ransomed, uh, paid the price uh, claimed as firstborn sons and heirs, uh, us. Uh, and who is us here, right? It's not just Israel. It's not just Judah. But every tribe, thinks of the 12 tribes of, of uh, Israel, but also every language and every people. So Egypt, I guess, too, and Assyria and Babylon and the United States of America and Germany and China and you name it, right? Uh, the Lord now has a kingdom from drawn from out of every crooked generation uh, into his marvelous light, uh, and uh, a kingdom of priests. 
that's a, a rich phrase that probably we couldn't spend enough time on. But uh, but it, Christ is our high priest, the Lamb of God, who shed his own blood uh, in the once and for all sacrifice. We also then, uh, as we mentioned earlier, are have become worthy in his uh, service to offer our living sacrifices, uh, two things. Our prayers are heard by him. Our praises are received by him. Uh, but also the good works, the confession of our faith, the suffering for his sake, the doing of good and works of love for our neighbors. These are now pleasing in his sight as well. He's glad to hear them. Uh, And astounding that he would say that even his priests would reign on the earth. I mean, looking forward to the eternal day uh, where, you know, where we all will be firstborn sons of the king. Now, John hears that first stanza, or maybe that antiphon of this song, and then he looks and he listens more. And now, as you gave that image of different choirs singing, that's what he starts to realize is going on. So far, we've just got the four living creatures and the 24 elders. Who else does John see start to join in this song of praise? The angels, and uh, we run out of uh, numbers here. Numbers really don't go high enough to count them all. Myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands are joining in. And this we know because we have it in a in a, a hymn uh, that now has been used in the church, and we especially associate with Holy Communion and with Easter. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Interesting, usually when you die, you pass on all the inheritance, uh, but Christ Jesus is alive out of death, so by his death and on account of his death, he also now is worthy of all of it, right? Uh, you know, take your pick on these words, uh, but it's clear to say he is the divine Son of God. As you mentioned before, that's why he receives worship, and the Father on the throne is not upset by this. Uh, they are of one substance. And now we got everybody else, too. Every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth, uh, in the sea, wherever there are people, they join in, too, Right. Uh, and to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, and I shouldn't, I don't think we should see that and so much as a two different guys, as much as a, yes, uh, it's it's the Holy Trinity, right? Uh, you can sing praise to Christ, you can sing praise to the Father, praise to the Holy Spirit, you can sing praise to the Holy Trinity. Uh, in everything, they are one. Um, uh, uh, to them be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then, I mean, as in most of our hymns, as in most of our prayers, we ought to say amen. Is this true? Do you believe it? Yes. Uh, so sometimes the pastor is the only one who prays, uh, and we say amen. That means that everything he said is our prayer too, right? Uh, or if you want to say it the other way, you can just recognize that uh, we're all going to uh, sing the final amen, right? We're all going to join in the choir at the end, Um and uh, you see that the elders in particular fall down and worship. Uh, this is what we see actually done to Christ quite a bit in the Gospels. We have the Magi, we have the leper, we have a number of people who bow down to him, who fall down on the ground, uh, which is uh, not something you're really supposed to do uh, unless it's God himself. Yeah, yeah. So when we see Christ worship, that is a confession that he is true God, and that is acknowledged here in heaven in Re- Revelation chapter 5. I have about three minutes here on the morning, Pastor Denser. We've come through the whole text. I want to kind of go back to where we started in terms of Revelation as a book of worship and the worship that we see here, the timeless nature of our worship, just recognizing the worship in heaven as it's described here. How does that bring joy to our worship on earth? 
How does that influence the way we worship? And I mean, just help us to wrap things up again with that emphasis on on worship as we see it in heaven and what that provides for us as we worship here on earth. Well, there's lots of, uh, I mean, fruit for our creativity, our, our pro-creativity, if you want to call it that, to uh, riff on this. Uh, certainly, you know, This is the Feast is kind of a, a, a song that's based on this text and trying to bring these words into our worship quite directly. Talked about Pretorius and, and many uh, musical uh, styles and approaches throughout the Christian Church's history that have drawn on this idea of all these different groups singing together. We have the text of the preface, which is one of the oldest parts of Christian worship, where it simply recognizes that we are gathering with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, particularly at the moment uh, where we're about to receive the Lord's New Testament in his blood in the Lord's Supper. Uh, and we echo that song from last chapter, Holy, 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 the Sanctus. Uh, but I think the thing that's most fruitful for us is to see how central Christ Jesus is in the whole business of prayer and praise, uh, that we offer our prayers in his name, they're acceptable to God in his name, uh, that even our praises are to be focused on him. And then, you know, what is said in, in simple and complex ways throughout the Psalter and everywhere else is the content of our praise matters. It's not just kind of sucking on God's thumb and, and telling him how great he is. You know, I suppose sometimes those worthy and wealth and glory and honor words all kind of run together as maybe generic and, and they lose some of their punch. But remember what lay at the center of this, what caused weeping to turn into tears of joy. It's the fact that Christ Jesus has died and is risen, right? I mean, that is a very meaty uh, and very essential part of our Christian faith, that we are going to always be talking about the salvation that was won for us, the ransom, the purchase, the blood that was shed for us, uh, what Jesus has accomplished for his uh, people, in fact, his people of all the world. And that praise that is being offered in heaven, we offer here on earth, and we will join in that praise eternally when our Lord returns and takes us to his glorious home. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He is also chaplain at the International Center in St. Louis, Missouri. He has been helping us today to study Revelation 5, verses 1 to 14. Pastor Denzer, thanks for being our guest today. Peace be with you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Revelation chapter 5, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.